Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. Watch out, you shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, proclaims about the shepherds who tend to my people. You are the ones who have scattered my flock and driven them away. You haven't attended to their needs, so I will take revenge on you for the terrible things you have done to them, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the few remaining sheep from all the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will place over them shepherds who care for them. Then they will no longer be afraid or dread harm, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from David's line, and he will rule as a wise king. He will do what is just and right in the land. During his lifetime, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety, and his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we reflect upon it this morning, your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Today, the final Sunday before Advent, is a day that those of us in the liturgical churches mark as Christ the King Sunday, which some folks call Reign of Christ Sunday. Now, this liturgical practice is actually a fairly recent innovation in the church. It was initially celebrated in 1925 when Pope Pius XI established the Feast of Our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, in an encyclical titled Quas Primus, meaning in the first. It was then more than four decades before the celebration of Christ the King found its current place in the liturgical calendar. In 1969, Pope Paul VI moved the feast from the last Sunday in October to the last Sunday of the liturgical year in order to emphasize the eschatological nature of the celebration. Eschatological, by the way, is simply the word that theologians use to mean the end of things. So by placing this celebration at the end of each liturgical year, we remember that at the end of all things, Christ will come to reign in final victory over all creation. What is worth bearing in mind for us today is how this celebration that's only been celebrated on this day for the past 50 years is actually in keeping with some of the most ancient prophetic hopes of God's people. Which brings us back to the reading that we just heard from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived during the time of Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians. A few weeks ago, when we looked at Haggai, we focused mostly on the history of Judah after the people returned from exile. Jeremiah provides his message to the people during the time in which the exile began. 
Jeremiah had seen the people be misled by false prophets, by priests who sought to enrich themselves at the expense of the people, by kings who placed their trust in their own cunning and strength. And in the midst of the destruction that was brought about by these people, Jeremiah offers a word of hope that there is a king who will not fail the people. Jeremiah declares that in the days of the king of righteousness, the people will no longer be afraid. They will no longer fear harm. They will live in a land of justice and righteousness. In light of those conditions that gave rise to Jeremiah's hopes, we can see why Pope Pius XI would also have been concerned about elevating the reign of Christ as a priority for the church. Pius XI was elected to lead the Roman Catholic Church in February of 1922. In his first encyclical titled Ubi Arcano de Concilio, he described the state of the world when he was called into leadership. He writes, since the close of the Great War, individuals, the different classes of society, the nations of the earth, have not as yet found true peace. They do not enjoy, therefore, the active and fruitful tranquility, which is the aspiration and the need of mankind. This is a sad truth which forces itself upon us from every side. And he was right that there was no true peace in the wake of the First World War. It was a period of dramatic social upheaval. Kingdoms and empires had fallen in the war and continued to fall as masses of people around the world sensed the chance to break the chains of bondage. For as traumatic as the fall of Jerusalem was to Jeremiah, it could not rival the scale of upheaval and destruction that occurred in the dawning of the 20th century. Pius XI continues on in this encyclical to further unpack the state of the world by writing, conditions have become increasingly worse because the fears of the people are being constantly played upon by the ever-present menace of new wars, likely to be more frightful and destructive than any which have preceded them. Whence it is that the nations of today live in a state of armed peace, which is scarcely better than war itself, a condition which tends to exhaust national finances, to waste the flower of youth, to muddy and poison the very fountainheads of life, physical, intellectual, religious, and moral. In short, the fear of others was constantly being stoked in order to keep nations in a state of readiness for war. The well-being of the people became secondary to the anxieties of security. And it was not just the looming specter of international conflict that threatened the tenuous peace of the 1920s, but political corruption as well, which Pius characterized by writing, to these evils we must add the contests between political parties, many of which struggles do not originate in a real difference of opinion concerning the public good, or in a laudable and disinterested search for what would best promote the common welfare, but in the desire for power and for the protection of some private interest, which inevitably result in injury to the citizens as a whole. From this course, there often arises robberies of what belongs rightly to the people, 
and even conspiracies against and attacks on the supreme authority of the state, as well as on its representatives. Like the ancient rulers of Judah, the politicians of the world were not worried about the common good. They thought only of their own power and of their own wealth. The conflicts of the ruling class were, actu were not actually rooted in distinct ideologies, but were instead rooted in concerns over which faction was going to be on top at any given moment. So it was in reflection on the ancient prophets, on the words of Jeremiah, of Isaiah, and Daniel, that Pope Pius XI established the feast of our Lord Jesus Christ the King. The ancient prophets knew that the destruction they witnessed stemmed from disloyalty to God, the true sovereign. Pius XI knew that the destruction he witnessed stemmed from disloyalty to Christ. And so they call on the people of God to set aside their other allegiances in radical obedience to the only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Quas Primus, Pope Pius sets forth his understanding of what it means for Christ to be the Lord of Lords by quoting Pope Leo XIII, who said, his empire includes not only Catholic nations, but also those who are outside the Christian faith, so that truly the whole of mankind is subject to the power of Christ Jesus. And we could argue about the language of empire being employed by a European pope in the 1800s, but the salient point is this. All human beings are children of God, meaning that all human beings belong to the family of God, meaning that all human activity is subject to the laws of God to love God and to love our neighbor. And the reason that I'm giving you all this history about the origin of Christ the King Sunday is to help us understand that the celebration of Christ as the only sovereign, the only source of authority, is as pressing a need as it was in the days of Pope Pius XI and as it was in the days of Jeremiah. When we hear Pius's description of society, can we really claim that much has changed in the past 94 years? Can we say, in the midst of a never-ending war on terror, that the constant terror of international conflict has disappeared? Can we look at the military-industrial complex that Dwight Eisenhower tried to warn us about and claim that the finances of the nation are not being exhausted? Or can we look at our politicians who are bought and sold by corporate lobbyists and say that their highest concern is the common welfare? Can we look at those same politicians and say that they're more interested in the good of the people than in the power of their own parties? Can we look at the gerrymandering of voting districts or laws that are intended to make voting more difficult and say that the rights of the people are not being robbed? Can we truly claim that the fountainheads of life and morality are not being muddied and poisoned? But the words of Jeremiah, his hopes and his faith, 
are just as relevant today as they have ever been. Because the words of the prophets, grim as they may be at times, are never without hope. Daniel Berrigan has this to say about the promises made through Jeremiah about our king of righteousness. He writes, Indeed, we must speak of hope, here celebrated as a substance of prophecy itself. It is a literal hope against hope, promulgated as it is in the teeth of the worst times, proceeding as it does from pure faith, a faith that both impels and rewards covenantal fidelity. Further, a faith that implies a great refusal, with a sense of lively contempt, a faithful people shucks off a victim role, mute, passive, resigned, otherworldly, a role urged, even imposed by the overriding culture, including abusive religion. Jeremiah knows it. The one who is to come is already present and accounted for. The Messiah is a social and personal reality both. And what Berrigan highlights for us is that when we look around and see nothing but bad news, we are never without hope. It's a hope that recognizes the bad news for what it is and still has the power to overcome because it's rooted in the greater reality of God. Haggai told us that the best is yet to come. Isaiah told us that we get to be a part of building what is to come. And now Jeremiah tells us that we can do so without fear because we serve the one king who has true authority. We are subjects of the kingdom of ultimate reality, servants of the one who rules in righteousness. So no matter how much the world will want us to fear, no matter how much the world will try to lead us astray, we know better. We know whose we are. We know that there is no power greater than our God. And we know that the kingdom will come and we will have abiding joy in the days of the king. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Prince of Peace, grant that we might know the inner calm of living as your faithful subjects. Guide us in your ways. Free us from our allegiances to worldly powers that seek to lead us astray from you. Establish your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.